John chapter 4, verses 7 through 26, our scripture reading for this morning. I think you can follow along on the screen or turn to it in your Bible. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I, that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. So I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Thanks be to God for his word. Will you pray with me? Father, as we now come to your word, um, to be fed by it, to find living water, God, to find what you demand of worship for yourself, Father, would you speak to the depths of our heart and soul, to the depths of our spirit, so that, God, we can worship you in spirit and truth, not only here in these moments, but as we go from this place and throughout our lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen. From about three to 400 years before Christ, the work of Plato and Aristotle especially had led to widespread acceptance that the earth was the center of the universe. Some 600 years later, around 150 AD or so, Ptolemy of Alexandria presented his helio, I'm sorry, his geocentric model of the solar system. 
um, which would be the predominant cosmological theory for the next 1,400 years. But in 1543, Polish astronomer Nicholas Copernicus dropped his heliocentric bomb of a scientific astronomical theory. He published this saying that the sun, not the earth, was in fact the center of our solar system. Tradition was now greatly at stake. Tradition that was hundreds of years in the making. However, it was a tradition that this Copernican revolution had shown to be inaccurate and incomplete, primarily because this geocentric, earth-centered tradition was centralized on the wrong thing. It was too limited in its scope and its sequence, and it affected everything else as a result. Its sufficiency, therefore, had fallen very short. When it came to science and astronomy, the Copernican revolution was truly revolutionary in every sense of the word. And when it comes to our text today in John 4, Jesus reveals his own even greater revolution. Not regarding our solar system or the universe in physical terms, but in regards to worship of God. The tradition here, too, had oftentimes gotten it wrong. Over the centuries, it had been inaccurate, incomplete, insincere, and inadequate, and at times, all of the above. Where did it go wrong, though? Far too often, it was centralized on the wrong thing, too limited in its scope, and therefore, its sufficiency fell vastly short of the glory of God and the worship that he is due. Verses 1 through 18 of John chapter 4 set the scene for this worship bomb, if you will, that Jesus drops here to the Samaritan woman. On their way to Galilee from Judea, Jesus and his disciples pass through Samaria and arrive at the patriarch Jacob's well. Jesus stops to rest, and his disciples go into town to buy food. And a Samaritan woman shows up around noon to draw water from the well. And Jesus, ignoring social norms and taboos, strikes up a conversation with her about water. Let's read again in verses 7 through 15. It says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to him, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, we don't know what the woman was thinking exactly, but at this point in the conversation, it seems like she thinks they're still talking about literal water, like H2O here. Um, Jesus, however, has shifted the conversation. He's expanded it into greater expanse. It is now spiritual water that is the topic of the day. The living water that Jesus offers is not made of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom, but of his very life and death and resurrection. But the Samaritan woman appears to catch on a little more in the next few verses. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. In these verses, (laughs) Jesus has exposed her sin and her heart. And it causes her to kind of bring up this age-old debate um, about where worship is supposed to take place, a debate that had been going on for centuries between Jews and Samaritans about the proper location for worship. Perhaps she was merely attempting to avoid the shameful conversation about her personal sin. Perhaps, though, she also knew that her sin required her to make a sacrifice. And she wanted to make sure it was done right. After all, there was a prophet here in front of her. And whether it was Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans worshipped, or Jerusalem at the temple where Jews worshipped, she thought, perhaps, I need to get this right. We don't know exactly. More than likely, there's some combination of these things going on um, in her mind. No one likes talking about their personal sin and having it pointed out to them. And when it is revealed, we typically like to deal with it and move on as quickly as possible in one way or another. She may have been thinking, here is this Jewish man I just met who knows things about me that he should not know. And if he is a prophet, he could, is the only way he could know them. He's going to tell me that my sin demands this sacrifice, but where will he tell me to go to make it? And it's in verse 21 that Jesus drops his revolutionary worship bomb on her. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. In these verses, Jesus dislocates worship from location, declaring that the question is not where, but how 
are we to worship this God of the universe? Both of which, by the way, the Samaritans had gotten wrong. And Jesus points this out. The Samaritans only accepted actually the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Pentateuch, and therefore they denied and rejected all of the writings such as Psalms and Proverbs and the prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus thus rightly points out that Samaritans worship what they do not know. Not only is their view of God too small, they have brought their own terms to worshiping him. They had deliberately ignored and rejected much of God's revealed truth. And that led them to worship in a place that God had not chosen for himself. But Jesus says that location is about to be irrelevant. Why? Because true worship is done in spirit. Solomon, the great wise one, wrote, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. This is the words of Solomon when he had constructed the great temple that God had commanded to be built for him. God did not need a temple. The people needed a temple where they could draw near to the Lord and truly worship him there through the sacrificial system that foreshadowed the death of his son. But even at the temple in Jerusalem, worship may have been externally in line with the commands of God's word, but inwardly, they often failed short. They failed to worship God inwardly in spirit. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, quoting the prophet Isaiah, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. As, as fallen sinful creatures, we have a tendency to place our focus on the wrong things. In this case, our outward displays of worship. We can get caught up in making the main thing be something that is the wrong thing. However, one of the most amazing parts of being created in the image and likeness of God is that we are spiritual beings with the capacity to worship God in accordance with his nature, which is spirit. God has enabled us to do this. This means that worship is more concerned with an internal posture than an external performance. Physical location and outward displays of worship mean nothing if our hearts are prideful before God or are disconnected from him. This is not to say that, our external, that the external has no place in worship, but rather that the external is always guided by and it is an outflow of the internal work of God in our hearts. Worship is through spirit. Furthermore, when our hearts are humbly offered up as an altar to the Lord, there is nowhere in heaven or on earth or under the earth, nowhere that the blood of Jesus cannot reach us. Physical location is irrelevant. Through the blood of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit, worship can take place anywhere because genuine worship is in spirit. But this inward sincerity alone is not enough. 
Jesus does not say it is only in spirit, but it is in truth. Spirit and truth must be united for worship to please God. It must be in truth, and the way that we know truth is through God's own revelation. His revelation through his creation, but more importantly, through his written word, the scriptures, and through the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ. We worship him according to what he has revealed about himself, about us, and about everything else. This is worship that is in truth. Worship that is in spirit and truth is always, always, always a response to who God is and to what he has commanded to us, what he has revealed to be true. It's a response. So why are we to worship him then? What is true about God that demands worship? We are to worship him because he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, because he is righteous, just, and holy, because he is sovereign and never changes, because he did not spare his only son but gave him up for us because he has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit and because of the infinite goodness of his nature that he reveals to us every moment of every day. All of this God has revealed as true about himself and it demands our response of worship in all aspects of life. And genuine worship, worship that is in spirit and in truth, must be in accordance with who God is and what he has said. In verses 21 to 24, Jesus is telling the Samaritan woman and us that the Father is not focused on the same aspects of worship as she is or as we tend to be, nor is worship selective in the ways that we tend to think it is. How can Jesus make such a revolutionary claim after centuries of established worship, both for Samaritans and Jews? that Jerusalem, the temple, as, in, as implied, is not necessary? That this mountain, the mountain where God pronounced the blessings upon the tribes of Israel in Deuteronomy, these places are not what God is concerned with. How can Jesus make such revolutionary claims? We get the answer in verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The Greek here is unmistakable. Jesus uses a term that is also used at the burning bush by Yahweh himself in the Greek, Greek Old Testament. He says, I am. Many places in the book of John, Jesus says, I am something. <laughs> I am the bread of life. I am the door. Here he just says, I am. Worship in spirit and truth is revolutionary because it declares that worship does not revolve around places, performances, or our preferences, but around a person. God himself in human flesh, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus can make such a revolutionary claim about worship because he himself is the fulfillment and the focus of all worship. The answer to the Samaritan woman's question, are you greater than our father Jacob, is yes, infinitely better. Jesus is the greater Jacob from whom the people of God are descendants by faith. No longer is, necessary, is it necessary to worship in a temple made by human hands because Jesus is the greater temple, which was torn down on the cross but raised up three days later. No longer is animal sacrifice necessary because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And through the redemptive work of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, every moment of every day is an opportunity for worship in spirit and truth. Therefore, when we worship, is, when it is in spirit and truth, all of life becomes this opportunity for worship. Charles Spurgeon said, all places are places of worship to a Christian. Wherever he is, he ought to be in a worshiping frame of mind. This is where it begins. Our hearts, our spirits are set on opportunities for worship, seeing that opportunity in every moment. Every thought, every word, every action, no matter the location, has the capacity to be worship unto our King. Worship is not bound to a particular time or place or language or rituals because the God who we worship is not bound by anything. Worship is not possible exclusively in a church building on a Sunday morning. You knew that, right? Having such an understanding of worship, one that is limited to a certain time and place, such as Sunday morning church service as we are gathered here today, such an understanding of worship will not condemn you, but it will rob you of joy. Because more significantly, it robs God of the glory he deserves from your life. On the other hand, we must also be careful not to downplay the gift and command that it is for us to gather with one another, with other believers for times of organized worship such as these. We should not say that, oh, well, because life is all worship, I don't have to worry about gathering with other believers. Nothing could be further from the truth of God's word. And when we find this kind of attitude, we see that there, and there's a lack of desire to be with God's people, worship is not taking place in spirit and truth. We should long to be with God's people, but we should long for every moment of our lives to be glorifying to our King. When we compartmentalize worship to only be certain acts or certain words in certain places and at certain times, we fail to see the worth of Christ and the gift that worshiping is to us. And this leaves the door wide open for idolatry in our lives. Idolatry in which we will be tempted to exchange the truth about God for a lie, and in one form or another, worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, as Paul states in Romans 1.25. Our sinful flesh, it wars against our spirit. This is all over Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching and the entire teaching of the Bible. 
our spirit and our flesh are at war with one another. And our flesh will lead us to attempt to hold on to the lie that we can be our own God. Sunday mornings are reserved for the worship of capital G God. But the other six days of the week, I'll, I'll, I'll worry about the things I need to do, the things I desire to do. It's so easy to fall into this. And yet this is not what true worship in spirit and truth is. Worshiping this way six days a week will inevitably affect how we worship on the Lord's day on Sundays. Like the geocentric model, (laughs) the earth is the center. We have a tendency to place ourselves at the center of worship. I can convince myself that my preferences on music style, preaching style, lighting, seating, and any other number of things are what Sunday service ought to revolve around. But the reality is all of life and all of worship is centered on one, Christ himself. And as Abraham Kuyper said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It all belongs to him. Our very life and breath is something to be given back to him. The only thing that is truly ours is our sin, and that has been taken by Christ on the cross. Therefore, all of life can be worship in expressing back our gratitude for our good and gracious King. Your life and my life, we owe it to Christ in worship. And this is good, good news for us because our lives are far better off when they belong fully to Christ than than when even they partially belong to us. They are far better off when they belong fully to Christ. A.W. Tozer said, we must never rest, never rest until everything inside us worships God. This is to be our aim, church. If we relegate and compartmentalize worship, this will never happen. It won't. But worship that is in spirit and in truth, it moves from being just an event that we attend or a task that we check off to a lifestyle that we live out. Rather than being a part of our daily agenda, it becomes our daily agenda. Rather than being a well that we continually return to like the Samaritan woman, worship becomes the stream that we swim in because the living water that is within us springs up and overflows into every aspect of our lives. When we gaze upon a breathtaking sunset, when we listen to the sounds of a thunderstorm, when we feel the warmth of a fire on a cool night, when we smell the fragrance of lilies on a crisp spring morning, when we take a bite of our favorite meal and our taste buds awaken, all of these are moments where worship should take place. Not of the things themselves, but of our gracious God who has made them and has given us the faculties to enjoy them but we can still go further. Even the most routine moments in our day-to-day lives can be turned into worship. College students, 
the way in which you apply yourself to your studies should be an act of worship. Why? Because your field of study is a piece of the vocational puzzle to which God has called you for his glory. Every class is an opportunity for you to have a kingdom impact on your fellow students and your professor. Every test, every paper, every project, every assignment is a chance to live out Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Husbands and wives, you can worship by honoring one another and forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. Parents, you can worship with your children, not just by bringing them to church, by the way that daily you teach them and model for them the truth of the gospel. Teenagers, you can worship by refusing to gossip or spread rumors about others. Teachers, you can worship in the way that you invest in even the most difficult children in your class by showing them the love and grace of Jesus, trusting that the Lord has placed each of them in your class and has a plan for their lives. Business owners, you can worship by running your business with integrity and in Christ's likeness, seeking not only your own interest, but also the interests of the customers whom you serve. We can worship by the way we steward our finances, whether we are poor or wealthy or somewhere in between. We can worship by serving in the church through handyman ministries, planning and hosting a tea for brides-to-be or expectant mothers, providing a meal for a family that has lost a loved one or is experiencing illness. And yes, even through serving in the children's ministry. Every routine act that a Christian does in obedience to Christ and for his glory is worship. And yet we can still go a little further. For not only the good moments and the routine moments of life, but the hard moments. The moments of trial and suffering are opportunities for worship. When Job lost everything in this life, his wife told him to curse God and die. Job acknowledged God's sovereignty and he fell on his face and worshiped. Christians, we have the opportunity and the joy to do the same. When the news from the doctor is not good, we can worship by trusting that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil for he is with us. When we feel alone, we can worship remembering that Christ was abandoned at his greatest time of need. But he has promised that he will never leave or forsake us. But rather, he is with us always to the end of the age. When a job is lost, we can worship by remembering that it is God who opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing, Psalm 145 says. Therefore, we can trust that he will provide the next job and provide for our needs when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. There is no moment that does not have potential for worship for the believer. Even as we lay down and go to sleep at night and then rise the next morning, 
we should be reminded in our hearts that though we may enter the sleep of death one day, Christ will awaken us to eternal life when he returns. Worship, genuine worship, is not centered on space and time, but on spirit and truth. It does not revolve around places, performances, or preferences, but around the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. This is true of the worship of Christ, certainly. Christ is both the centerpiece that we fix our gaze upon for worship, but he is also the one who illumines all of life to be opportunity for worship. And not only opportunity, but it is what he deserves. Every moment, every thought, every word, every action. In our sin, we are like the geocentric theory. Like I said, we like to place ourselves at the center of worship in one way or another. But in spirit and in truth, we can embrace the Christocentric revolution where all of life is worship that orbits around the Lord Jesus Christ, where he is the central light that shines upon everything. As I was thinking about this at the end here, I was thinking about when Simba and Mufasa are up on Pride Rock and he says, everything, Simba, that the light touches is our kingdom. This is a glorious picture of what is true of the Father and the Son. That in his obedience, Christ has been given by his Father all of creation, all the universe, and that includes every heartbeat and every breath of you and me. So with this theme in mind of a central sun rather than a central earth, I think it's fitting that we close today reading from Revelation 21, verses 22 and 23, where it says, by John, describing a coming city that not only now but forevermore, Christ will be the focus and he will be the one that shines on every part of life. It says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So, as you leave today, as you leave this time of worship today, go forth and worship today, tomorrow, and in all of life. Our king is worthy of it. And in doing so, we find the greatest of joys and contentment in him. Will you pray with me? Gracious Father, what an honor and a joy it is to worship you in any way. But God, thank you that you've made it so tangible for us, so, so accessible through Jesus. 
that he has torn the veil that separated us. And he himself is now the way and the truth and the life. Father, may our lives be worship that revolves around our Savior and King to your glory and for our eternal good. Thank you for the truth of your word. May it transform how we see every millisecond of our lives. We praise things in your name. Amen.